0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo.
1: episode 33 of the big show and I can't wait when I say the big show I mean one of the biggest episodes of Sorallo sports talk we've ever had we are hours away from this year's NFL draft and Trey Wingo who of course was at ESPN for a couple decades he will be leading the Fox sports coverage of this year's NFL draft he's all set to join the show super stoked for that spot But first, I'm going to take the opportunity here in my monologue to address, to answer what I believe are the three most pressing questions surrounding this year's NFL draft. And that starts with the number three overall pick, the San Francisco 49ers. What will the San Francisco 49ers do with that number three pick? That I don't know, but I'll tell you what they should do with the third overall pick in this year's draft. Trevor Lawrence is going to be a Jaguar. Zach Wilson almost as certainly as Trevor Lawrence we know will play for Urban Meyer in Jacksonville, we can say that Zach Wilson will be a New York Jet Thursday night. The number three overall pick needs to be, has to be, must be, Justin Fields. All right, Mac Jones is not the guy for San Francisco. And reports came out, I believe Ian Rappaport came out with it earlier this week, saying that San Francisco was torn between Mac Jones and Trey Lance with the third overall pick. Look, I believe in Trey Lance significantly more than I believe in Mac Jones. Either one would be a colossal mistake with Justin Fields on the board. I don't want to hear anything about Justin Fields lacking passion for the game. I mean, that was totally debunked in his incredible college football playoff semifinal performance when Ohio State steamrolled Clemson and Justin Fields who was banged up, bruised, and battered in that one. Had, I'm pretty sure, several fractured ribs in that game that he played through. He threw for six touchdowns. He hung in the pocket all night long and created plays to send his team to the national title game, where, of course, they fell a couple weeks later at the hands of Nick Saban's Crimson Tide. Justin Fields loves the game of football, all right? There's no doubt about that. I mean, if he made the remarks that Trevor Lawrence made a couple of weeks ago, where Trevor Lawrence said, you know, I love football, but football doesn't define me and who I am. Not that there's anything wrong with what Trevor Lawrence said. If Justin Fields had said that, he would have been murdered in the court of public opinion. He is passionate about the game. He is tough as nails. And let's talk about his physical ability, right? I mean, does anyone in this draft class throw the ball harder You can argue that, you know, Trevor Lawrence is the most accurate, even though Mac Jones led the country in accuracy this past season. Trevor Lawrence, look, this is a generational prospect. We haven't seen, I don't believe, anyone like Trevor Lawrence come out of college since Peyton Manning did in, what, 1998, the year I was born. I don't want to spend too much time on Trevor Lawrence because we know he is head and shoulders above the next four quarterbacks that could all be taken in the top 10. But Justin Fields is the closest to Trevor Lawrence. I think the Jets are going to regret not taking Justin Fields, so it would be an incredible blunder for San Francisco to miss out on him with the third pick. They should consider it a gift that the Jets are taking Zach Wilson, and I know Zach Wilson wins the improv award, right? He can roll out of the pocket, back foot, no look, make all the throws that Patrick Mahomes makes that we see on SportsCenter every Monday morning. Wilson probably can make the sexiest plays out of the five quarterbacks that can go in the top 10 here in this year's draft, Justin Fields is a better quarterback than Zach Wilson. Justin Fields dominated a Clemson defense that is annually in the top 10 in the country this year in that semifinal game. And it came at the perfect time too, because after Justin Fields had a tremendous 2019 season, he really fell off this year in 2020 in the weird COVID six game schedule that Ohio State played. But if you're going to criticize Justin Fields for his performance in a six-game regular season, and if you're going to bash him for his passion, don't forget the Big Ten wouldn't have had football if it weren't for Justin Fields. Justin Fields was by far the most prominent voice that led the way for Ohio State and for the Big Ten to even have a football season. So were there times where his performance was a little lackluster in the regular season? Absolutely but under the brightest lights on the biggest stage in the college football playoff, he showed who he truly is, who he truly can be at the next level against an NFL-ready Clemson defense. This is a defense that is used to having not just one, but in most years, multiple first-round picks just on that side of the ball alone at Clemson. Justin Fields dominated them. He is the second-best quarterback in this draft. Mac Jones at three would be a colossal mistake. Fields has the velocity. He has the deep ball accuracy. He doesn't like to break out of the pocket often, but when he does, he has the 4-4 speed, that good luck for any defensive lineman, any linebacker who's trying to hunt him down. Justin Fields is your guy. Don't overcomplicate this Kyle Shanahan and company out in San Francisco. Take the best quarterback there at three. Take Justin Fields. If you draft Mac Jones, you're essentially taking a glorified Jimmy Garoppolo. And don't get me wrong, I think Mac Jones has potential to be better than Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think Jimmy Garoppolo is one of the 16, maybe not even one of the 20 best starting quarterbacks in the National Football League. So yeah, Mac Jones could be better, and he fits the Shanahan system, right? The super accurate pocket passer who can hang in there and throw these little dunks and dives. Mac Jones is not the guy. I think in most years that Mac Jones wouldn't even be talked about As a top 15 pick. I mean, a few months ago, he was a fringe first round pick. And now we're talking about him going at number three? Don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. Justin Fields is your pick. Now, if the first three are Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and Justin Fields, that brings us to question number two which team should trade up for a quarterback the most? I don't think it's New England at 15. I don't think it's the Washington football team at 19, and I don't even think it's the Chicago Bears at 20. And all three of those can be the right answer. All three of those teams are viable options to trade up for a quarterback, trade potentially into the top 10, would be a little tougher for Washington and Chicago because they're drafting lower at 19 and 20. But I think that a team that's already in the top 10 is a team that should trade up for a quarterback. I think that John Elway's Denver Broncos need to be hammering the phone lines with Atlanta for that number four pick. I mean, how badly does Atlanta want Kyle Pitts that they would stay there at four, knowing quarterbacks are going to be the first three selections, and take probably the second best athlete in this draft class behind Trevor Lawrence? Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love Kyle Pitts. I think Kyle Pitts has Hall of Fame pass catcher written all over him at the next level. I think Atlanta needs to pass on him. Atlanta doesn't need offense. They have Matt Ryan, a Hall of Fame quarterback. They have Julio Jones, who, yes, there are rumors about them potentially trading him. If they keep him, he is still one of the most effective wide receivers in the NFL. They have Calvin Ridley paired with him. They've got Hayden Hurst solidifying the tight end position already. And, you know, Hayden Hurst, he is not much of a blocker himself. So if you draft Kyle Pitts, you essentially have two receiving tight ends in Hayden Hurst and Kyle Pitts. Atlanta needs defense. Right? The thing that's stopping Atlanta most from, I can't say winning the division because the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, by the way, became the first team ever to retain all 22 starters after winning a Super Bowl. So Atlanta won't win that division. But the only thing stopping them from potentially being a wild card team in a fairly weak NFC is defense. So trade back because no defensive player is worth the number four overall pick. And Denver needs a quarterback. Denver is a team that if they have a quarterback, can actually make a run at competing for a wild card. I know the AFC is stacked. I know it is so much better than the NFC, especially in terms of depth once you make it past the top two or three teams. But Denver, with a formidable quarterback, can actually make some noise in the AFC. Uh, If you look at that defense, right? Von Miller and Bradley Chubb coming off the edge. You've got a great secondary. Kareem Jackson and Justin Simmons are both back. At their respective safety positions. Denver has a really good defense. It's one of the reasons that last year they were one of the best teams in football against the spread. Their defense kept them in a lot of games. By the way, the Broncos have some really good targets if they can get a quarterback with a pulse out there. I mean, they've got five formidable receivers, Noah Font also at tight end, who is a great pass catcher, Melvin Gordon on the ground in the backfield, Denver's offense, their offensive line, they could use a little help there in the second or third round, but it's not that bad, especially at the tackle position. If anything, Denver needs to really fortify the interior aspect of that offensive line. They need a quarterback. They need a quarterback in the worst way. Trey Lance is your guy. Trey Lance could be a project, but he is the guy to bring in to give Drew Locke a a competition to be your week one starter. If you bring Trey Lance in, I mean, he's what, about two weeks removed from his 21st birthday? He's a baby, and that's coming from me, a 22, almost 23-year-old. I've got two years on this guy, and he could go fourth overall if Denver does the right thing and trades up. You bring him in, you put the pressure on Drew Locke, right? You're not drafting Trey Lance at four or at nine if he should slip, but I say don't waste time, go up and grab him. You're not drafting him to immediately be your week one starter this year. You're drafting him to put pressure on Drew Locke in year three to see what he can do. And this way you either have success, you motivate Drew Locke, he becomes that dude. Or if not, you move the hell on and you get a guy who's being compared athletically to Lamar Jackson. But people say with a better arm. That's what Trey Lance's potential is can reach. Now I love Lamar Jackson. I don't bash Lamar Jackson's throwing. I think that he is a top tier quarterback, but if people really believe that Trey Lance is a Lamar Jackson prototype, but with a better arm, then my God, he can win the MVP because hello, Lamar Jackson is an MVP. Denver, you need to take Trey Lance. It won't cost you all that much to move up from nine to four, especially when there's really no team between the fifth and eight picks that are going to rob Atlanta of a star cornerback like a Patrick Serton or a J.C. Horn, make the deal. Elway and company, make the deal. Move it on up from 9 to 4. Take Trey Lance. Now, the third and final question of this year's NFL Draft's first round that I'm going to answer, what the hell is going on with this year's running back class? Will a running back be taken in the first round? Most people's big boards don't have any running backs in the top 32 players available. Last year, it was the final pick, the Kansas City Chiefs, the then reigning Super Bowl champs. They took the first running back at 32nd, taking Clyde edwards helaire There will be two running backs taken in the first round this year. Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, they're both going to go, question is, where? Well, Najee Harris has two possibilities. You've got Miami at 18, which would make him the first running back taken off the board. Also, ETN can go to Miami at 18 if they feel like he's a better schematic fit with Tua. I think ETN a little better in the passing game than Najee Harris, so that'll be interesting. But in my mock draft, I have Miami going offensive line at six because I have Jamar Chase to Cincinnati, Penny Sewell to the Dolphins, and then the other side of the line of scrimmage taking an edge rusher at 18. That's what I think the Dolphins need to do unless a wide receiver like Devonta Smith or Jalen Waddell somehow falls into their lap at 18. I think Najee Harris is destined to be in the black and gold. I think Pittsburgh at 24 is the perfect fit, and I know some people out there are saying, how can they take a running back if they don't have an offensive line to protect him? The same reason I have Jamar Chase going to Cincinnati at five, This is an incredibly deep offensive line class. There's a lot of versatility, a lot of guys who you can plug in at left tackle on day one or right guard if you need to. There are so many options on the offensive line that I think it's actually going to hurt these guys draft stock because there are some studs out there. A guy like Tevin Jenkins, who most years could be potentially a top 20 pick. This year could fall to the second round just because teams can sit back, address their skill positions early where there may not be as much depth, and then hit O-line Friday night. So I think Najee Harris has to be the first move for Pittsburgh, take him at 24, and then Travis Etienne. That's where things get totally spicy. The New York Jets and the Buffalo Bills. Again, should he slip past Miami at 18 The New York Jets and Buffalo Bills both want this guy. And he's a stud. They both should want him. I think Travis Etienne is a lot like Jonathan Taylor, who last year I thought was a first-round back. In fact, I thought Jonathan Taylor was the only running back worthy of a first-round pick a year ago. And he slipped to Indianapolis. And we saw the incredible season that he had for the Colts. Travis Etienne can be that dude. He can be even better. And I love Jonathan Taylor. Etienne can be even better In the right system. So if you get Najee Harris, the first running back off the board to Pittsburgh at 24, things are going to get very interesting. You've got Buffalo taking the 30th overall pick, and you've got the Jets who have the 23rd pick right ahead of Pittsburgh, and the 34th pick, the second pick, on day two Friday. So what the Jets can do here is either make ETN potentially the first running back off the board, take him at 23, and then address, we know they're going Zach Wilson at two, address either edge rusher or a cornerback early on Friday with the 34th pick. Or if they get an opportunity to take a cornerback who may slip, a guy like a Greg Newsom out of Northwestern or a Caleb Farley out of Virginia Tech, who of course has the injury problems, if the Jets can grab one of those guys at 23, then you consider a trade then you consider a team who can afford to move back like New Orleans. You consider giving them your 34th overall pick to move up to 28 to leapfrog Buffalo. If the Jets strike a deal with New Orleans, say the 34th pick this year, and then next year's Seattle Seahawks first round selection, remember the Jets have two first rounders this year, two first rounders next year as a result of the Jamal Adams trade. They've got the draft capital. They can afford to make a move like that to all of a sudden jump Buffalo at 30 and get ETN if he's still on the board at 28. And the Saints can afford it too. I mean, I have the Saints taking Kadarius Toney, the wide out out of Florida, who's a tremendous deep threat, if they hold on to that 28th pick. Well, newsflash, Kadarius Toney will be there if the Saints slide down to 34. Green Bay ain't taking him. Green Bay's not taking a wide receiver. They show us that every year. They refuse to bolster that offense early on in the draft. I think Green Bay goes with a linebacking option, maybe an Aziz Ojalari, a Zavin Collins, the dynamic playmaker out of Tulsa. Green Bay's not going to disrupt New Orleans's plans. So if New Orleans wants to make that slide down, that trade down with the Jets, the Jets can leapfrog Buffalo not only to keep ETN on their squad, but to keep him out of their division. So there's going to be a lot of drama, I believe, after the 18th pick. When it comes to running backs, Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, I think Harris to Pittsburgh, much more of a sure thing. But Travis Etienne can create a lot of drama out there in the AFC East. When we return, Trey Wingo joins the show. I can't wait for this one. There are very few better minds out there in the world of football than Trey Wingo. So stick with me, Joe Sorallo. I'll be back right here on Sorallo Sports Talk. (sighs)
0: Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe.
1: We're back here on Soralo Sports Talk and joining the show. He's the pride of your national champion, Baylor Bears the host of the incredible Half Forgotten History podcast, available wherever you get your pods, and the man who this year will be leading Fox Sports' coverage of the NFL draft. It's the legendary Trey Wingo. Trey, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Joe, good to be with you, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Trey. It's good to talk to you. It's been a while, and congratulations on your Baylor Bears, man. How was that experience for you? That was great. Um, you know,
2: a bunch of, uh, bunch of us were thinking, okay, uh, let, are you going to go to the final four? And I couldn't go to the game Saturday, the semifinal against Arkansas, because I had that interview scheduled with Mac Jones, who I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit here. Yeah. But I said, if they win that one, I'm going. And absolutely, they blew him out. And uh, yeah, hopped on a plane and watched uh, with my my friend RG3 as they just dunked all over Gonzaga. And that was that was a lot of fun. It was a good night.
1: It was an incredible night for you guys. Not really an incredible game. I mean, just like the Arkansas yeah. game, you guys dominated from start to finish. But congratulations. You know, you opened the you opened the door right there, mentioning Mac Jones. The 49ers, of course, at number three. That's when the draft really seems to begin. We know it's Trevor Lawrence at one. It's most likely Zach Wilson at two. Do you think Mac Jones is the guy for San Francisco with the third pick? Well, I, listen, there's a couple
2: of thoughts there. Um, I I think for me, the draft, first of all, really starts at four because Mm -hmm. I know that the Niners are taking a quarterback. So to me, what Atlanta does, I think, is the most intriguing thing here because do they depending on what they do, it signals potentially a regime change and taking a house down to the studs or we sort of put uh, another slap of paint on here and see if we can keep this thing going for a while. As for whether or not Mac Jones is the guy, I don't know the answer to that. I know the Niners know like you don't make that trade up to get one of three quarterbacks. You know what I mean? Doesn't happen that way. So uh, it's going to be one of three guys, but it's one of three guys that they've known for all along. You don't make that move by saying we'll be happy with one of those three. There's a guy they've been targeting since they made the decision to make that trade. And we'll find out soon.
1: Who do you think based off your experience and watching these guys, it should be? I mean, I believe. Justin Fields should be the guy, the Jets target at number two. That's just how I feel after watching him for years yeah. in the Big Ten. What are your thoughts?
2: Outside of Lawrence, who has – now, i got to be careful about how I phrase this. I think people are as sure about Trevor Lawrence as they were about Elway and as they were about Andrew mm-hmm. um, uh, that I think that's how strong they believe the consensus is on what he can be. As for the rest of them, it's all a project. I mean, like, Zach Wilson had an incredible year. Last year at BYU. The year before, not so good. You know, it was okay. It was it was great. And and Matt Jones and Justin Fields have done incredible things and accomplished a lot. Um, but sometimes that doesn't translate. Just look at the recent quarterback drafts, right? The first quarterback taken in 2017 was Mitch Trubisky. He's now backing up Josh Allen in Buffalo. Yeah. 2016, it went Goff and Wentz one, two. They're both on the different teams that drafted them. 2015, Marcus Mariota and Jameis Winston, or Winston and Marcus, went 1-2. They're both on different teams that drafted him. Sam Darnold was taken in the top five in 2018. Now he's on to the Carolina Panthers. There's only one sure bet as far as I'm concerned, and that's Trevor Lawrence. And I'm not even sure how sure that bet is. All that that being said, I I, I do think that there's a possibility that he does do very well. But it's a crapshoot, and people just need to understand that. That's why we're drafting quarterbacks five, six times in the first round every year.
1: Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And you mentioned that the draft, in your eyes, begins at the fourth pick with Atlanta. Do you think that the Falcons trade back and that a quarterback could go fourth, just like we know a quarterback will go first, second, and third? Yeah,
2: and that would be a first, by the way. We've we've only had it go one, two, three one time, and that was in 71 when it was Plunkett, Archie Manning, and Dan Pastorini in the way back machine here.
1: That's some half-forgotten history right there.
2: There it is. Thank you very much. By the way, is that an Eli Manning jersey over your right shoulder? Is that what that is? What is signed that?
1: and signed and game worn in Super Bowl Forty Six? I believe there's 20 signatures on it. Strong flex. Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> b- by the way, Eli will be part of uh, Fox Sports' coverage of uh, the NFL Draft this year. I'm, I'm taping an interview with him in about uh, 20 minutes. So that's amazing.
1: I was going to ask you that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, we we all draft these guys every year, and half of them work. So I take I've come to take a Zen philosopher approach to this. We'll see, you know, no one's, no one's wrong on draft night. That's the beauty, but that, that's what makes the draft fun, right? No yeah. one's wrong. You can only be proven wrong three or four years down the line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned bringing up that 71 draft class, Archie Manning, one of the top three quarterbacks taken there. Personally, he's one of my favorite guests that I've ever had on my show. I had him on back at Radio Row a couple months ago down in yeah. Tampa Bay. And you brought up how you're going to be working with Eli What do you and Eli have in store for us? Can you give us a little preview, a a little hint as to what's in store? Yeah, we're going to go back and talk about his draft experience. You know, people
2: forget in 2004, he was the first overall pick of the Chargers. And he's gone out of his way to say, I'm not playing for you guys. And there's that really awkward uh, moment where he's holding up the jersey, and you could tell he'd rather be anywhere else. (laughs) And it it just struck me. And I don't think anybody's ever made this connection before. That was the first rendition of Eli face right you know the <laughs> face that was known in the nfl where he, where he just sort of looks like he's out of it and whatever we all saw it on draft day we just didn't know it that was the original eli face meme it was right there in front of us 17 years ago
1: that's incredible yeah you're you're 100% right i never thought of that either you know you you think of the famous picture i believe it was a game against the bears where he had thrown four or five interceptions and that's the meme yeah. that goes around but you're 100% right hey Trey, i know you have a great relationship with eli and the manning family what are your thoughts when his time comes? You know, I- I'm an Eli defender through and through. I was at his last game against Miami. Is he a Hall of Famer? Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer?
2: I don't think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I think he's the most interesting debate of all time mm-hmm. because I think he's going to get in, And I have no problem if he does get in. But I just don't think it's going to be as easy as people think. You know, I- I've had people describe the uh, Hall of Fame voter room and say, you know, eventually those East Coast Mafia guys, they get what they want. You know, they'll, they'll push through. Like I was having this discussion about another receiver who played for a, a team in the Northeast. And those East Coast Mafia guys, they'll eventually get him through. <laughs> uh, but Eli's interesting, right? Like the, the two Super Bowl runs are incredible. And he played great. He's two time MVP, although you could make the very compelling argument that Justin Tuck should have been the MVP of Super Bowl 46. Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll we'll get into that. Just go back and watch that game. He was everywhere. Forty six or forty two? Forty six.
1: Oh, okay. Because I thought forty two was Tuck's coming out party. He was he was fantastic. Yeah. In both. Well, in forty six,
2: remember on the, on the first scrimmage, of the first uh, series for the Patriots, he's the one that forced the safety. Uh, safety yeah. Because you know Brady just got rid of over the middle. And oh, by the way, that ended up being the difference in the 21-17 game because they don't have those two points. They just need a field goal to win. And instead, they had to go get a touchdown. That changed, that changed it dramatically. He had like two and a half sacks in that game. He was a monster. Yeah. Anyway, we got, we got, we got side-railed. Uh, I, I, I think he's going to get in, but it's, it's a very interesting case study because you go down – look, he, he amassed good numbers. There's no question about that. And he has the two Super Bowl rings. But at any time, did you say to yourself, man, that guy's one of the top three guys or four guys playing quarterback right now? And just outside of those two postseason runs, I'm not sure you could say that.
1: Yeah. No, it's a very compelling argument. I mean, for me, it's just, and I know I believe you agree with me on this wins are not a quarterback stat. Yes, And you know, it's a team effort and people want to point to his record and say, Oh, well he had a 500 career record. I mean, he played, especially at the tail end on some. That's irrelevant.
2: That's that's yeah. That's an irrelevant thing to me. I like it. it, I'm so glad you look the the quarterback wins with a Z thing. It's like, man, you guys don't get it. Like I, I don't count rings in, in terms of, whether I think someone's the greatest of all time. And I know that's a sacrilege and no one will ever amass what Brady's done. So you're, you're going to lose that argument all the time. But to me, that means you're on a really good team. Mm-hmm. And you had to play well when the team was really good. For example, Brady got the MVP this past year, right? Yeah. Do we? Okay, let's just, let's just have a reality check. That was the Chiefs team that had averaged 31 points a game in their postseason career in every game that Mahomes had started and finished. They were held without a touchdown and got three field goals. And yet the quarterbacks, the MVP, come on, man. (laughs) Uh, Did you not see Devin White play or Shaq Barrett? You could have given it to about five defensive players. And that probably would have made more sense than Brady getting the MVP. I'm not Uh a Brady hater. I'm just saying we we are so quarterback centric right now. It's crazy.
1: No, I'm glad you said it. I'm 100% with you. You know, I was at the game this year. It was the first time I'd ever gone to the Super Bowl. And uh, I turned to the person who I was there with. And I said, Devin White's the MVP. So I'm so yeah. glad that you said that because I think you could have given the MVP to the entire Tampa Bay defense. You could have given it to Todd Bowles. You're yeah. right. It was not Tom Brady. I mean,
2: uh, this, this happens like I'm the biggest Patrick Mahomes fan of all time. And I think he's going to go down as arguably the best who ever played the position, whether or not he amasses the rings is a separate issue, but he shouldn't have been the MVP last year. Williams was the MVP last year, the running back. Yeah. I, I mean, that's yeah. the way I saw it. Um, and you know, my God, Julian Edelman won an MVP when the Rams offense was held to three points. And, and I, Julian played great, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't the MVP of that game. Jim Plunkett won the MVP of Super Bowl 15 in a game in which linebacker for the Raiders, Rod Barton, had three interceptions. That's how screwed you are as a defensive player. You're a linebacker. You get three interceptions in a Super Bowl, and the quarterback gets the MVP. What are we doing?
1: What are we doing? You're 100% right, uh, Trey. I could not agree any more. Uh, look, because I know we are a bit crunched for time here. One thing that you've always done when you are with your previous network and your draft yeah. coverage is you highlight the best stories, some heartbreaking, yeah. some really uplifting, but on draft night, you are the storyteller. So what are some storylines that you're really looking forward to sharing here in this year's draft? I mean, Quiddy Pay stands yeah. out to me as one of the most phenomenal, but what are some others out there you're looking forward to sharing with the rest of the world?
2: Well, quitty, quitty Pay story is amazing uh Aziz Ojalari the the, the the kid out of Georgia his story is amazing his grandfather was a true Nigerian prince like he was the heir to the entire kingdom and oh, his wow. name was Prince 277 and he got the name Prince 277 because he was the only surviving son of seven sets of twins that his parents had and he went on to become a, a musician and traveled the world and, uh, and so that's where Z Story of gets his creative side from, but we'll look out for the, the phrase Prince, Prince seven, seven coming out at some point when Aziz Ojalari gets off the board.
1: Amazing. I can't wait for it. And Trey, before I let you go, before we wrap things up, you and I met for the first time just over three years ago, I was visiting Justin Craig on spring break from St. Bonaventure. He invited me up to Bristol for the day and I had no idea. I knew I'd be sitting in on the final hour of your show, then Golik and Wingo, of course, which... I woke up with every single morning, I had no idea that you were going to make the time to speak with me after that show. And you spoke with me, I was 19 at the time about your career trajectory and, you know, that you like so many others in this industry almost came to a breaking point where you thought about calling it quits and, you know, leaving, going into something more practical. So as myself and plenty of other young, aspiring broadcast journalists try to navigate the sports broadcasting world in a pandemic, what advice do you have for us?
2: Well, uh, Ed, thank you. That was very nice of you to say. Um, look, this is hard, and it's never going to get much easier. Do it because you love it, but don't let someone decide for you. There's so many people that will say, "Someone says no." Well, that's that's it. Then they must not know what I must not be good good at this, or uh, I, you know, it, it's not for me. I'll give you an example. I, I sent out my tape once when I was in a tiny town in Binghamton, New York, to a guy at a bigger station in new hampshire and the guy called me back and said i looked at your tape you're small time your tape's small time you will always be small time i just can't hire you and i don't see how anyone would and you know that's about as bad as it can get as someone who's 25 years old trying to figure this bleep out and i was like screw that guy i'm gonna decide if i don't if i don't want to do it it's gonna be my choice it's not gonna be somebody else telling me I'm going to tap out when I want to tap out, not when you're telling me to tap out. And, you know, things worked out pretty well, and that guy went to jail for tax evasion. So I consider that a
1: <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. He's serving time, and you're out in Los Angeles right now covering the draft for uh, the <laughs> upteenth straight year, man. Congratulations. I really look forward to seeing you, what you do with Fox Sports this year, Trey.
2: And best of luck to you and your career. Always good to talk to you, man.
1: Thank you very much. We'll be right back here on Soralo Sports Talk with my final word. Stick around.
0: Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Soralo Sports Talk.
1: It is time for my final word right here on Soralo Sports Talk. What an incredible spot from Trey Wengo. I said it earlier, one of the best minds in the world of football Trey is just an incredible guy. I can't wait to see the fantastic things that he brings to Fox Sports' coverage of the NFL draft. In my final word, I want to shift away from the draft, right? This whole show, every show for the past two, three weeks, the past month, everything has focused on the NFL draft. And we talk about the once-in-a-lifetime generational talents that we could see. And we place all of this pressure on the 21 year old who could be a Hall of Famer or the 22 year old who could save a franchise. I want to focus on a future Hall of Famer on not just a once in a generation talent but a once in a lifetime talent in a different sport that we should be enjoying and appreciating every fifth day when he takes the mound for the New York Mets, and that's Jacob DeGrom. Now As I record this, it is Wednesday afternoon, April 28th. As you're listening to this, it is already Thursday the 29th or later. So Jacob DeGrom will have already pitched in Wednesday night's contest against the Boston Red Sox. But if you look at what he's done coming in to this matchup through four starts, I know it's early in the season. We're not even at May. We're just over a tenth of the way through the Mets schedule at this point, at this moment in time right now, they've played 18 out of 162 games. Well, in his four starts through the team's first 18 games, Jacob deGrom has an ERA of 0.31, a whip, walks and hits per innings pitched of 0.55. He's accumulated at least 14 strikeouts, which prior to his last outing was his career high. He had done it four times twice this year. In his last outing, his third straight outing of 14 or more strikeouts, he hurled a career high 15 in a complete game shutout, nine innings of two-hit ball against division foe the Washington Nationals just last Friday night. Jacob deGrom is not young. He is not up and coming. Most people would say, or rather he should not be up and coming. He might be. Most people would say he should be on the decline already. He is just two months away from turning 33 years old. I know because Jacob deGrom's 10th birthday was the day I was born, and I'm just two months away from turning 23. This man is someone who pitches for a team that, while they only have two world championships in 50-plus years of existence, almost 60 years, they have a rich pitching history. Hall of Famer Tom Seaver, arguably the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time. Doc Gooden, whose peak made him as dominant as anyone, as dominant as peak Sandy Koufax back in the day. You had Johan Santana with multiple Cy Youngs in Minnesota bring the first no-hitter in Mets history to Flushing, Queens. R.A. Dickey, who came over as an unknown knuckleballer trying to find himself, wins a Cy Young for this squad. I mean, the Mets have as rich a pitching history as any other franchise in Major League Baseball. Jacob deGrom could be the best of the lot. And I know, Tom Seaver. Who I argue is the best right-handed pitcher of all time. You know, I can't talk about Cy Young and and Walter Johnson and Christy Mathewson. I'm sorry, I have to I have to cut it off at some point. And when I discuss the best right-handed starters of all time, I eliminate Roger Clemens because of the steroids, and it usually comes back to Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson. You know, Greg Maddox just doesn't compare to those guys, in my opinion. It's Seaver, Gibson, Pedro. Those are the three best righties I've ever seen do it. Jacob deGrom, he still has a ways to go to get there. Another Cy Young, maybe another two Cy Youngs, another 10 years. He's a guy who can hit 3,000 strikeouts. If he hits 3,000 strikeouts, considering he made his Major League debut just a month before his 26th birthday, that would be one of the most impressive feats of all time. I mean... The odds for a major leaguer who debuts at 25 years old to make the Hall of Fame are slim to none. Even lower if you debut at 26, which like I said, he was just a month away from his 26th birthday when he took the Hill and Queens for the first time. We are seeing nothing shy of extraordinary greatness. Like I said, not generational talent, once in a lifetime talent. And you know who Jacob deGrom reminds me the most of when he takes the bump? It's not Tom Seaver, it's not Bob Gibson, it's not Justin Verlander, it's not even a baseball player. Jacob deGrom looks a hell of a lot like Tom Brady out there when he's competing, because that's what these two guys are, right? Some of the most fierce competitors in the history of their respective sports. Guys who were underrated. Jacob deGrom was a mid-round draft pick coming out of Stetson where he, by the way, committed to play shortstop, didn't become a full-time starting pitcher until he was a junior at the age of 20. Prior to that was their shortstop and their closing pitcher for Stetson. Tom Brady, everyone knows it. He was the 199th overall pick in the NFL draft the year he was taken out of Michigan. He was not supposed to be anything, barely supposed to be a starter. I mean, he was Drew Bledsoe's backup until an injury opened the door for the best football player ever to embark on his Hall of Fame career. I mean, Jacob deGrom, another another guy with the same situation, right, was viewed as a bullpen piece who could help the Mets potentially as a late-inning arm. Instead, injuries opened the door. Jacob deGrom and his fellow prospect at the time, way more highly touted prospect, Rafael Montero, debut back-to-back nights in the Subway Series in 2014. Montero was supposed to be all that. I was at his debut against Masahiro Tanaka, who I believe was a rookie in the MLB at the time with the Yankees, and Montero just didn't wow me. I mean, this is a guy who was touted for his Pedro-like changeup, but it lacked movement. His fastball was nothing special. He didn't have a curveball or a slider of note that would make his changeup much more of an effective pitch than it was. I was very unimpressed with Rafael Montero. But it was Jacob deGrom who went out there and I believe in his debut delivered seven innings of one run ball in the subway series. It was him who caught my eye. And that Jacob deGrom is a shell of who he is now. That Jacob deGrom won the rookie of the year and he's nothing compared to who he is now. The Jacob deGrom who in 2015 helped get the Mets to the World Series with some lights out performances against the Dodgers and Cubs in the playoffs is nothing compared to who he is now, just months away from turning 33. He is going to go down as a top 10 pitcher of all time. He is going to surpass, in all likelihood, everyone in the game today. You can't compare Garrett Cole to Jacob DeGrom. I'm sorry, you can argue for Garrett Cole to be the second best pitcher in baseball, right? Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, right now, here in 2021, the argument's open. Those guys aren't Jacob DeGrom. Clayton Kershaw when it's all said and done, might not ever have been as impressive as Jacob deGrom is right now. And I know that they're different pitchers, right? Kershaw's a lefty with great junk. DeGrom's a a flame-throwing righty. But deGrom, in terms of dominance? Now, Kershaw has one thing deGrom doesn't have. That's an MVP award. We'll see. Obviously, a a .3 ERA is hard to sustain, but Jacob deGrom should not just be in the running for Cy Young. He should be in the running this year for the MVP. Justin Verlander, another incredible career. He's got a perfect game. He's got no hitters. I don't know if Justin Verlander was ever as dominant as we've seen Jacob deGrom consistently be now for the fourth straight season. You know, I talked about how phenomenal he was in 2015 and route to the World Series. That's not even a part of his peak. That was his second year. That was Jacob deGrom's, you can argue, coming out party. But from 2018, now through 2021, I mean, again, it's a long season, but there's no reason that he can't or won't win his third Cy Young in four years this year. And you can argue last season, you know, he came in, what, third in Cy Young voting? Of course, Trevor Bauer had a great game, had a great year, rather. It was a 60-game season. I mean, who knows how 162 games would have played out? I think Jacob deGrom, over the course of a the marathon, that is 162 games in Major League Baseball, I think Jacob deGrom is the better pitcher. I think he can go out there on a consistent basis and dominate, whereas Trevor Bauer, as we've all seen is prone to erupting out there. And I know we haven't seen it in the better part of a year and a half or really just a calendar year. But if you watched him with Cleveland, when he was that highly touted prospect out of UCLA who could change the game of baseball from a metrics and physics and science standpoint. Look, I I went to two Cleveland Indian games I've been to in my lifetime. First one was Indians twins back in the summer of 2016. Trevor Bauer happened to be pitching that night. Got shelled, erupted, got pulled in like the third or fourth inning. All right? Do not compare Trevor Bauer to Jacob deGrom. If deGrom goes on to win three Cy Youngs in four years here by the end of 2021, lock him in for the Hall of Fame. It's what he does after that that will solidify him, help him climb the ladder as potentially a top 10 pitcher of all time, as potentially the greatest of all time. Just like Tom Brady. These are guys who don't want to beat you. These are guys who want to embarrass you. Who want to make you go home and cry to mommy because you had to play them. That's how fierce these guys are. That's how memorable they will be for years to come. Just like you won't see another Tom Brady, you won't see another Jacob deGrom. So appreciate the greatness. Enjoy the greatness. And turn on your damn TV to the Mets every fifth day. Because you cannot miss a Jacob deGrom start. Just like that, episode 33 of Sorallo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks to Trey Wingo for coming on the show with great stuff. I expected nothing less from him. Guys, enjoy the NFL draft. Enjoy every damn time Jacob DeGrom takes the bump. See you next week.